Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are happy to welcome Elijah Gullett back to the show. Eli, I know there are some people who are meeting you for the very first time. In addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back on the show. Um, So I'm a recent graduate of UNC Chapel Hill, where I studied public policy and urban planning. And I am, outside of being a Young Voices contributor, also the branch leader for ACC's, or the American Conservation Coalition's Raleigh-Durham branch. Very nice. And I've got a great article from you in front of me from uh, freethepeople.org. Republicans can become the party of civil liberties. I'm feeling like we need somebody to stand up for civil liberties. Walk me through the scenario here. What puts Republicans in that position where if they chose to, they could become the party to stand up for civil liberties? Yeah, so a few weeks ago, uh, right before our midterm elections, The Intercept published a really um, jaw-dropping report about the way that social media companies and the Department of Homeland Security had been working in tandem to suppress speech just that the government had labeled misinformation or disinformation. Uh, this included topics around COVID-19, uh, race relations, um, and Russia interference in the elections. So. Might throw the Hunter Biden laptop in there just for good measure. Oh yeah, that too. Yes, that too. Big one. Yeah, that's... I. I hear about those stories, too, and I have grave concerns because suddenly, you know, the idea, well, they're, you know, they're private companies, these these social media giants, so they can do whatever they want. But if they're in partnership with government, it seems to me that 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 private company relationship has has changed somewhat. Now, I'm not so certain that uh, that it's it's cool for them to engage in suppressing speech. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a big thrust of the article was, uh, and one thing I know I was sort of thinking through while I was writing the piece was how complicated this relationship is between social media and government. And it really does, um, it doesn't fit super neatly, I think, into a lot of our traditional theories about, you know, government power versus corporate power, private sector power, for example. Because in this case, it is simultaneously the government threatening these companies with regulations and then the private companies sort of jumping on that as an opportunity to get ahead of the rest of the competition by being even more censorious. Um, and I think it really does complicate the idea that like we can just trust these companies as they exist now to be uh, arbiters of con- or true arbiters of good content moderation when they're clearly in working in junction with the government. You know, I'm not a I'm not a law expert. I don't even speak Latin, but it sure seems like it's kind of a quid pro quo in that hey, you take care of us. We'll take care of you. You know, the, the arrangement works out well for both those government agencies as well as for these social media giants, you know, where they kind of scratch each other's backs. Definitely. And I think it kind of goes to show how regulation is like government regulations are really bad way to do content moderation. Right. It creates these really bad incentives on both ends. Um, and it I, I just don't think it's a recipe for good governance. And I don't think it's a recipe for trust in our institutions. You know, I think a lot of people see this happening and we're seeing a movement on the right to, you know, for example, support more government interference in these policies, right? To protect what they perceive to be as suppression of their speech. Um, and, you know, I kind of make the argument in the piece that like, you just can't trust regulation to do that well. Um, 
regardless of who's in power, right? Because power shifts, who's in charge shifts. They're going to come after you if you have these place, you know, these sorts of laws in place. So, okay, so that that is a conundrum, and I think you're right on the on the mark here. Whatever you give, you know, the guys who you agree with uh, as a tool to use to to fight on your behalf is going to end up in the hands of your opponents at some point. So you got to be very wise about you know what power you ask government to exercise on your behalf. Where could we go from here to, to solve the problem? Though I think it's a very real problem, but if more regulation isn't the answer, what would you consider a more productive approach? So I would break down our uh, answers into two parts. The first one would be congressional action. I think Congress needs to start doing its job instead of you know passing the buck off to these unelected bureaucrats in uh, you know uh, executive administrative departments like the Department of Homeland Security uh, to make these types of decisions. And I need I think they need to actually start working to oversee the types of policies that organizations like DHS are taking and making sure that, uh, you know, people we've actually elected to be in office are getting a say in this process and are just allowing them to run roughshod over our uh, governance. The second thing I think is actually something we all can do. And I think, you know, I think it's really easy when we see speech that we consider to be despicable, or we see these private companies make content moderations decisions that we disagree with to immediately jump onto wanting the government to act. I think that this is a place for government. I actually think we all need to take a step back and say, you know, I can believe that something you said is despicable, or I can think this, that when Twitter, you know, uh, remove someone, block someone's account, for example, that that's a bad decision. And also I can say simultaneously, I don't think the government is in the right place to make those decisions well. And I want the government to take a step back and not be involved in this. And this is something we can take part as individuals in the process, right? Like, you know, if you don't like the way that Twitter runs Twitter, you can go to a different social media site, which is already happening. You know, a lot of people who are mad that Elon Musk took over the company are now moving to other smaller um, sites like Mastodon. Uh, and then if you see someone you disagree with who says something you really dislike, you can say, I believe you have the right to say that and I will defend your right to say it. And I'm going to I'm probably personally just not going to engage further. You know what I mean? So that's there's wisdom in that. Right. <laughs> I, I think we've all been there where someone's wrong on the Internet. I'll be up all night, you know, trying to, to sort this thing out. Um, Eli, talk to me about Section 230. Um, I'm sure that this in, in addressing a, a problem like this. There have got to be people who are thinking, well, the first thing we need to do is is uh, revamp Section 230. Good idea? Bad idea? What do you think? Yeah, so I, I think some background for the listener. Section 230 is a 1990s uh, bill that was passed that sort of protects the publishing rights of private companies online so that they cannot be personally held liable for the things that other people say on their platform. And a lot of pushes from both the right and the left in Congress have happened to increase the types of regulations and to remove some of those protections from companies. Um, I think this is a really bad idea. I think protecting uh, the rights for these companies to run their own content moderation not only protects the ability for competition in these markets so people can leave the companies if they don't like the way they moderate and let the best you know, moderator win in some sense and on top of that i just think they're not they're i don't think they're taking these second order effects um into their decision making process as much as they should right so when you get rid of section 230 protections you're opening the ability for the government to make decisions about really complex and minute parts of our public discourse. 
and what counts as good speech. And we're seeing this from both the right and the left in Congress, right? We're seeing people on the left be really mad that, for example, Twitter, you know, has forms of things that they would consider hate speech, right? And they think they shouldn't have protections to keep that on their site. Um, and then on the right, we're also seeing people really mad about the content moderation decisions of major companies like Facebook and Twitter. They believe they're suppressing conservative speech and they won't, and both of them are working in tandem to <laughs> make sure that the government can be more involved on this issue. And in fact, I think that's really dangerous. And the reality is handing this type of power over to the government is just going to open up your side to suppression when the other side wins in the political arena, right? Our politics are thankfully deeply democratic and they can shift really fast. <laughs> but that means that when you open up these types of powers, your side isn't always going to win. Your side isn't always going to get the types of results you want to see. Something you point out in your article that I thought was really on target is uh, for, for Section 230, these smaller startup social media companies uh, like Rumble, Telegram, Truth Social, Mastodon, they need that uh, protection of Section 230 just as much as, as the bigger ones do. In fact, the bigger ones could, could withstand changes to the section. They could absorb those changes a lot easier than these, these smaller ones could. I want that competition. I want that choice because I'm confident the, the, better, you know, the better mediums are going to rise to the top. Yep, definitely. And we're already seeing co bigger companies like Facebook try to uh, encourage increased regulation because they know at some level that that's how they keep their competition out and they maintain their place. Um, and I just think that people pushing these types of regulations and these policies really aren't thinking through the second order effects that might happen. So why don't more people trust the market you know, to, to innovate and to make the, the changes and the adjustments that need to be made? Why, why do we tend to reflexively turn to regulation? Um, I think, first of all, we've gotten really used to the government in many ways, taking on jobs that they really shouldn't have. This has been going on for decades in this country and across much of the Western world. And on top of that, I think it pushes us psychologically, right? We are psychologically prone, like I said, when we see despicable things said, to want something to be done about it. You know, if you think racism is as bad as we know it is, and you see someone be racist on the internet, we want that gone. We think it causes harm to other people, for example. And it would make sense that you would want the government to interfere, but you're not thinking through how regulation actually works in practice. We're trying to apply an ideal theory of government to a deeply unideal reality. Again, we are talking with Elijah Gullett. He is a Young Voices contributing fellow, as well as the branch leader for American Conservative Coalition's Raleigh Durham branch. Where can people follow you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Market Urbanists with an S at the end on Twitter. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Charlie Brandt to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as a student at George Washington University Law School. And Charlie, I bet there's a couple other hats you wear as well. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. Um, as you mentioned, I am a second year law student at the George Washington University Law School and a contributor with Young Voices. Um, after I graduated college um, in winter of 2020, I briefly served as a long-term substitute teacher with Montgomery County Public Schools. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm, I'm happy to have you on board today. and I'm really excited to talk to you about an article that I see uh, you've written. This was published in the Orange County Register. The courtroom is no place to challenge California's Prevention of Cruelty to Farm Animals Act. 
Now, I have to admit, I was not familiar with this before looking at your article. Although I have a really good friend who worked for the Humane Society for years and years, I know this is the kind of policy that, that he has probably worked towards, but can you give us some of the background? What is this act? How was it? I believe this was enacted by Citizen Initiative, and, and what, what does it accomplish? You have it exactly right. So um, it was by popular referendum that the voters of California adopted uh, Proposition 12, referendum or initiative, I sometimes uh, mix up those two words. It essentially imposes heightened requirements um, on the livestock producer industry, especially with respect to confinement systems. So relative to the other states in the union, California, um, for producers hoping to avail themselves of California's massive market are going to have to comply with these rather rather stringent standards as to the confinement systems of livestock such as pigs. Okay, so when we talk about confinement systems, I, I assume that we're talking about big factory farms where you have hundreds, maybe thousands of pigs being raised and and then uh, sent off, you know, to to slaughter, you know, in in a pretty tight environment. Would that be accurate? Yes, I believe so. And what was what was the main concern behind that? I mean, I know animal rights groups have been have have talked about this for years, but this sounds like this actually had more of a mainstream support than just simply, you know, the animal rights crowd. Well, of course, um, that would be the case. It was, you know, adopted by popular vote by the voters of California. Um, it's just ensuring that livestock have greater space. But my article isn't actually as to the policy merits of the decision. Rather, it's as to the, in my view, frivol frivolousness of the lawsuits against California's Prevention of Cruelty to Farm Animals Act, which is being challenged um, by the pork industry in a case the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on just recently, I believe last month, in National Pork Producers v. Ross. Interesting. And, you know, this this shows you, I, don't, I haven't grown up around, you know, the major uh, livestock industries other than, you know, I, I my daughter raised a steer for 4-H, so we have, we've dabbled in cattle ranching, but it was a pretty small-scale thing. What were the major concerns about, uh, about the confinement systems? Um, what, what was it that, that prompted people to put this to a vote? Well, it was a concern of, of simple animal rights. Uh, the, the, the notion that these animals were not um, given sufficient space and that it was cruel to confine them uh, to, to areas too small for them to, say, walk around, to move around, and the like. Um, that is the will of the people of California. They've spoken, and they've set in stone heightened requirements for these confinement systems. Um, other states, out-of-state uh, pork producers, challenged it in court under something called the Dormant Commerce Clause. This is a doctrine that posits that because the Constitution, Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, to be more specific, empowers Congress to regulate commerce among the several states, it impliedly constrains states from significantly burdening interstate commerce. But of course, this is a judicial fiction written into the Commerce Clause by the Supreme Court in an inappropriate policymaking capacity. It's not actually on the four corners of the document that is the Constitution of the United States. Interesting. 
All right, I'm 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 enjoying the background that we're we're getting here. So, where is the proper place if someone does want to challenge this? I mean, I don't know what what kind of impact does this have, for instance, on pork producers to have to to revamp their confinement systems. It sounds like that would be a fairly large undertaking, maybe for some of them. Absolutely, I you know my my piece in the Orange County Register actually concedes that Proposition Twelve might indeed be bad policy. The problem is challenging policies such as Proposition 12 in the courts. Policies are crafted, public policies rather, are crafted by those we elect in state legislators and in the Congress. Essentially, the Supreme Court, a panel of nine predominantly upper middle class lawyers, are being asked to abrogate the will of the people of California, not because it conflicts with any specific federal statute or because it conflicts with any particular constitutional provision, but rather because it's bad policy whose out-of-state economic effects on producers are simply too powerful to justify uh, the the, uh, putative benefit with respect to animal welfare. Now, that makes sense. So does this put the ball squarely back in the court of Congress? which has that charge to regulate commerce between the several states? Well, I would contend that Congress is the proper place to challenge things such as Proposition 12. Our Constitution empowered Congress to regulate commerce among the several states, not the Supreme Court, and for good reason. Congress is at the mercy of voters, and as such, they craft policy in consultation with voters. They don't want to lose their jobs. At variance with the Supreme Court, Uh, whose members have life tenure, who are not popularly elected. So these pork producers are challenging the statute under the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine. And precedent is on their side. But in my view, the precedent is erroneous because it places the Supreme Court squarely in a policymaking role. It is not the court's job to weigh the costs and benefits of public policy. That is a quintessentially legislative mission. And our framers well understood that. And for that reason, in Article 1, Section 8, they empowered Congress to do the same. Now, in Federalist Number 32, Alexander Hamilton made crystal clear that where the framers desired that powers be denied to the states, they made they stated as much. They denied the power to the states in express terms. The Tenth Amendment tells us that all the powers not expressly taken from the states and granted to the federal government remain in the states. Yet this doctrine runs afoul of these core constitutional principles. Uh, Now, this may seem like an odd question, but um, lobbyists, how would they figure into this? I mean, where there's policymaking, you're going to find lobbyists. I'm certain that uh, the the pork producers industry, for instance, has some pretty high-powered lobbyists. Um, They can't lobby the Supreme Court, but they could certainly lobby Congress, couldn't they? Well, essentially what they're doing is lobbying the Supreme Court. And that's what's so problematic about National Pork Producers v. Ross. They should take their lobbying to the People's House, to the Congress of the United States, where such lobbying is actually appropriate. Bringing California to the table and forcing them to work with representatives of other states to come to a solution that all the states and all the people of the United States can agree upon is the manner by which our elected representatives craft policy that not only benefit California, but benefit the entirety of the United States. It would allow California to come to the table and to reach a compromise. By just challenging it under the Dormant Commerce Clause, we're essentially gutting the role of the Congress. We are allowing 
Congress to use the Supreme Court as a crutch of sorts to, to work extra constitutionally to abrogate state laws when it has no constitutional authority to do so. No, that makes sense. And and I, the quote you have from Chief Justice William Rehnquist about if there's going to be a council of revision, it ought to at least have some connection with popular feeling. I hear that and I go, is Congress trying to duck responsibility here? Or at least duck you know accountability on the part of the people? I've seen them do it before. Wouldn't surprise me if they were uh, maybe tempted to do it again. Charlie, tell people where they can follow your work, where they can follow you on social media, etc. You can follow me at charliebrant 44 on Twitter, and you can also find me on my Young Voices page. Okay, and we will actually have a link to your article in the uh, OC Register. And thanks so much. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. You as well, and to your viewers, too. Back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome David McGarry back to the program. David, we've had you on here a number of times before, but uh, for folks who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. Um, I am a Consumer Choice Fellow with Young Voices, and I've been writing extensively about tech policy and uh, consumer issues. And today I have a piece up at National Review that deals with the fake, debunked Twitter monopoly. <laughs> Twitter's been in the news a lot lately, and actually, I, I admit, I've been spending a fair amount of time on Twitter, just kind of watching the fireworks after uh, Elon Musk's takeover and so forth. But I have to admit, I, I was not under the impression that, that Twitter had uh, a monopoly. Where did that myth originate? Well, you weren't under that impression, and neither are a whole bunch of other sensible Americans. But there's, there's a... Um, there's a healthy line of thought, especially among Twitter users who are who tend to be hyper political, that Twitter is the public square. Um, they 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 think they think that Twitter essentially has such a great market share that it's just due to, uh, as I put in the article, to uh, be around for a thousand year reign, and that's just simply not true. And it takes a very small, tiny view of the tech space that completely ignores the history of platforms um, rising and falling, even even platforms that, you know, that people were once calling monopolies themselves, like look at MySpace, look at Yahoo. Um, I'd point everyone to a pretty funny Fortune article that, and if I can get this right, they called the folks over at Yahoo, I believe it was the, the net besotted Yahooing uh, 20 and 30 something web surfers over at Yahoo and talked about how they'd won the search engine wars. Um, the article in some cosmic joke was uh, printed the uh, or published the same year that, that Google search was founded. Dang. That did not hold up well to the test of time. Uh, you know, I've, I have heard people, and I can't remember who it was, somebody, I think just within the last week, actually had suggested, well, maybe it's time we need to nationalize Twitter because they were saying it's the public square. And, you know, in order to protect the public square from, I don't know what, free speech, Elon Musk, whatever, uh, we maybe we need to nationalize it. Um, does that come from a place of really we want more free speech or is that uh, more coming from a place of we just need to keep this under control lest there's too much 
speech? Well, unfortunately, I think it comes from both sides because you're seeing people on the left say that we have too many dissenting opinions, many of which, as I point out, turn out to be correct. Just, you know, see see the COVID lag, lab leak theory, though I should caveat, the lab leak theory, to the best of my understanding, is not yet fully, conform, fully uh, confirmed. It just has gone from um, a unpermitted, terrible piece of misinformation to now it's considered a very plausible option. Anyway, um, but but there's a lot of people on the left who simply don't want people to be able to express dissenting views because they think that it is dangerous to society. Um, and then over on the right, we have our friends like Ted Cruz who are so convinced that um, First Amendment protections don't extend to private companies if those private companies like um, so many social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter have achieved a certain amount of popularity that basically we need to lower the the strong arm of government and enforce our preferred policies on all of these modern tech giants. Um, and besides the the sort of silliness of assuming that giving the federal government control over private companies will somehow redound to the benefit of conservatives, um, as if the uh, administrative state will will be stocked with hardcore libertarians and conservatives going forward. Um, it's it's just simply wrong, like I say, because Twitter isn't the public square. There's only only about, uh, I should say, about 90% of the content on Twitter is produced by a quarter of a quarter of Americans. About a quarter of Americans are on or, or use Twitter, according to Pew Data. And from that user base, only about a quarter of them produce upwards of 95% of the content. Wow. Now, see, I find myself in a little bit of a quandary, though, in, in the sense that, um, yes, these are private companies. But at the same time, we're, we're starting to hear where there was actually, you know, there was collusion between executives from some of the big social media giants and federal agencies in, in terms of uh, shaping you know, what was appropriate, what was the narrative and so forth. And, and that's when I start to go, wait a minute, that line between private property and versus government suppressing free speech starts to get a little bit blurry. However, what you have said about, do you really want to get government uh, fully in charge? I don't. So I, I feel like I'm stuck. I'm still looking for a solution for how can we overcome that, uh, that cozy relationship between some of these tech giants and various federal regulatory agencies or even law enforcement agencies uh, without uh, creating more government, which always seems to be part of the problem? I think you bring up a good point, but I would, I would counter that the way to rid, um, rid our country of problematic and harmful government intervention and speech is not to add more harmful and problematic and likely unconstitutional federal government regulation of speech. Agreed. Um, Agreed. It's it's sort of like the crony capitalism argument where where so many so many um, intermarket interventionists like to say, oh, we created a problem by instituting X, Y, or Z regulation. What's the solution? More government. That's how we fix it, right? And and it only it only tends to make things worse. And and I just want to go back because I think it's worth underscoring um, this 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 process of jawboning where government officials use a sort of un, uh, I should say uh, uh, untraditional traditional means or use threats or use the the bully pulpit to try to get um, social media companies or other companies to conform to their their wishes this is a big problem we we need government not to be out of speech or excuse me we need we need government to um, to 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 avoid being being arbiters of what is true and what is not 
both in the official channels through bills passed by Congress or what have you, and also through the unofficial channels, meaning that that we just we need a we we need to put a stop to um, our leaders essentially threatening companies that they don't like with um, with potential legal or regulatory action down the road. Well, I think your warnings against uh, you know the the pro regulation right are are very well founded. Um, at the same time. I, I really feel like there's something's got to give, and I, I'd love to see it in the in the form of competition. But it sure seems to take time and and a whole lot of money uh, for some of these upstart companies, you know, to to gain any traction whatsoever. No, that's a that's a great point, and it's actually something that I touch on in my article. It's it's very difficult and can be quite nerve wracking at times to wait for the market to solve issues. Um, the the market The market shouldn't be described as a quick fix mechanism. Um, these things, these things do take time, but I think Elon, I think, I think Twitter was, was on, on the decline. And I think Elon Musk is either, (laughs) I should say, I believe Elon Musk is probably going to make, uh, make that decline come a little bit sooner unless he shapes up. Now, of course, maybe he'll, he'll realize that his experimentation isn't, uh, shall we say responsible and he will, um, write the ship and run a more traditional company, hopefully with more allowance for free speech and differing opinions. But nevertheless, the market asked for more free speech, and Elon Musk provided it. So I was surprised in in reading your article to see that uh, you know Twitter, compared to other platforms, is not the king of the heap, and, and it's it's popular, and, and and it seems popular to me. But that's only probably because I spend some time on there. Uh, I've kind of I've kind of drifted away from Facebook, but it sounds like Facebook, particularly Facebook Messenger, that's where the real numbers are. No, that's a very that's a very very good point. Um, and first of all, I'd, I'd point out that Twitter's user base is disproportionately um, interested in politics and it's disproportionately elite. So you have a bunch of people who have a lot of power. Um, and I don't mean this in a conspiracy theory kind of way. It's just true. You know, you have your journalists, you have your politicians, and they're all getting together on Twitter. They're all talking to each other and they're all convincing themselves that that what they're doing, um, which is a conversation that excludes the vast majority of the country, um, is the all important um, is the all important part of American discourse. And it simply it simply isn't, um, and it isn't reflective of what a lot of, I should say, the majority of Americans actually believe. Um, I just also like to like to throw in there that in terms of width of user base, um, Twitter is losing out to LinkedIn and Pinterest. So once we start having the great antitrust hearings for LinkedIn, I will take some of these uh, some of these proposals a little bit more seriously. Is that coming? Is is that really? Oh no, coming? definitely okay. not. Because I think everyone knows. <laughs> Fair enough. But I, I think it's a good point, though, is that sort of points uh, to the bubble that Twitter actually is. Because everyone everyone knows that on paper, um, Twitter isn't anything close to a monopoly. But once we all get wrapped up in a whirlwind of outrage and excitement. Um, from spending too much time on the platform, that's where that's where people start to get off track. David, I'm wishing we had more time that I could pick your brain about social media in general. I, I'm coming to the conclusion that maybe I need to just kind of back off how much time I'm spending on it, but I probably should do that anyway. Tell people where they can follow you and where they can find you on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. Which I, a platform that I, I uh, probably am on a little bit too much as well, at David B. McGarry. 
And you can find my work at publications such as National Review, at TechDirt, at, um, uh, at Real Clear Policy, or on the Young Voices website. All right, David, great to talk with you again. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Always a pleasure. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're happy to welcome Caden Rosenbaum back to the program. Caden is a Young Voices contributor. And Caden, I'd appreciate it if you tell our audience just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Hi, I'm Caden Rosenbaum. I am the Tech and uh, Innovation Policy Analyst at the Libertas Institute. For those of you who don't know what I just said, that's Libertas, L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S. And we're a Utah-based think tank. And that's Libertas is uh, not the way you say it in Utah, it's Libertas. So I I cover tech and innovation policy, uh, and I'm really excited to be with you today, Brian. You guys do fantastic work, by the way. This is is one of the public policy institutes that really gets things done. So... I'm I'm happy to talk with you and 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 love it when when we uh, I love when we get to talk with representatives from uh, Libertas as well. Yeah. I want to talk yeah. about Twitter. We actually talked about this in the last segment with with David McGarry, but Caden, um, I'm anxious to get your take on on what's going yeah. on with Twitter. I see a lot of drama. I see a lot of uh, stuff Fun. going on since Musk has taken over. Uh, your article in the American Spectator is Musk wants to fix Twitter. Good luck. What exactly yeah. is he up against? Well, uh, if you look at Twitter as a platform that people want to be on, it's slowly declining in popularity. It's no longer uh, the hot new thing. It's not something that younger generations are going to want to join. They mainly join it because they have to, because that's where their millennial bosses are at. Um, and, And if you're looking at Twitter as something going forward into the future, as some platform for everyone uh, to be on, it's, it's no longer looking like a front runner. Things like TikTok and Be Real are more likely to outpace Twitter going forward because not only is the attention span shorter than 140 characters, it's little 15-second clips, you know, just really quick, just tell me what you want to say and let me see your face while I do it. That's what people want now. And so just to begin with, what Elon Musk purchased was a platform that was in trouble. And it's been bleeding users, it's been bleeding revenue uh, long before he came along. But now he's got an issue that he's got $44 billion tied up in this, and he seems to have uh, be having trouble running it properly in the first place. You know, as you're describing what's happening to Twitter, I, I had this epiphany, and it's like, this sounds a lot like what I just saw happen over the last few years with Facebook. For a while, right? Facebook, Facebook was... Tumblr, MySpace, yeah, all that, of it. It's all a trend. That was the place, but now even even me, as, a, as an old Gen Xer, you know, I... I don't go on Facebook all that much. It just doesn't have that that much to offer. So, yeah, I don't know. exactly. I, uh, same for me. Same I get the impression I, I go on it to send my friends memes to make sure that they're still connected with me, <laughs> uh, my high school friends, and that's about all I do. No, memes are, are really that's that's probably the number one reason why I go on social media. <laughs> but um, you know, I'm I'm happy on the one hand when when Musk um, bought Twitter. I was hopeful that that at least he might uh, entertain reversing some of the more uh, repressive policies because it really seemed like Twitter was throttling down so many viewpoints. You know, oh, sorry, that violates our terms of service. And it appears that he's done so. Uh, in your opinion, though, Caden, uh, did, did he did he yeah. do this in a way that actually is is worsening the situation that, that Twitter was in? Yeah, actually, uh, Brian, all due respect. I mean, I, I see the, the viewpoint throttling and, and I hear the 
the uh, the side of the the aisle where it's saying, you know, we're being gaslighted, we're being uh, shadow banned. But I think that for Twitter, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not their problem, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people get caught up in the free speech problem as well. You know, the shadow banning free speech issue, and they get caught up in it, and they get wrapped up in it, and they think that's the issue with Twitter. If you could just fix the free speech problem, you would fix Twitter and make it popular and something that people want to come to. But it's, it's, that's not true. That's not what Twitter's problem is. The problem is that people don't really want to be on Twitter in the first place. They don't really have use for it anymore. And so with the, the reversals of some of these uh, deactivations, some of the account takedowns, we have seen uh, you know, some, some popular support from uh, people who have been really angry with social media in the previous years. But I wanted to point out that uh, recently we, we saw the former president's account, former President Donald Trump's account, get put back up. And to this day, I mean, I think it's been like a week, maybe two weeks since his account went up. To this day, uh, it's still pretty much just inactive. Nothing's happening on that account. And I think that the important point about that is whenever President Trump's account was taken down, there was a lot of criticism that the shadow banning was going to deplatform him, that he had no voice anymore. And yet he's a front runner in the Republican uh, race for the president this in 2024. And now that he's back on Twitter, it appears that it doesn't matter to him, that it wasn't a platform that really needed to be there in the first place, that it wasn't his platform to speak. And I think the important point there is that even without using Twitter, now that he has access, he has full access, even without using Twitter, he has that voice still. He still has the news, still has his rallies, you know, and that's the important point about shadow banning. So I think that free speech on Twitter is, it's it's a great idea. You know, it's a great utopian idea, but whether or not you have free speech, it doesn't matter if you have no users. You know, if there's nobody speaking at all, what's the point, right? Well, and, and my concern was was probably less about uh, the free speech and more about the idea that the, um, and this is true with other fo- forms of social media as well, including Facebook and, and YouTube, is you just don't know. I mean, uh, people people yeah. find themselves warned and suspended and sometimes banned for things that uh, that really don't make a whole lot of sense. And to me, right. that's, a, that's a huge disincentive to use a program right there. So maybe that has something to do with why people are like, you know what, this is a waste of time. And they're yeah, looking elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, elsewhere. that could be, for sure. I mean, really ambiguous terms of service is never good for anyone, right? If you don't know the rules of the game, that's that's hardly a, a good thing. And I think that that's what, uh, you know, for Facebook, for instance, they uh, created the oversight board before they were meta. You know, they launched the oversight board, funded it through a, a trust that they can't touch, um, and said, hey, we need to make our, our terms of service more usable and user-friendly so that people understand what is and is not okay. I think that was a move in the right direction. And uh, recently I saw a report that Musk was thinking about doing the same thing, uh, creating a, a content moderation council to really focus on this. And I think that's a good step forward for any platform. It shouldn't be that difficult to simply say, like, hey, let's actually dig into the weeds of what we're saying without just you know, taking down content or putting it back up. But I think that at the end of the day, I mean, it's really important to realize that whether uh, someone wants to post on Twitter or not is irrelevant. It's whether Twitter wants to host your content. Because like any other publisher, like any other uh, news site or social media platform, it's their choice. I mean, it's their platform. It's their website. And uh, I think that that's the important point to take away from all of it, right? And so whatever Elon Musk does when he, you know, trolls on AOC or 
anyone else about the blue check mark. I mean, that's his that's his right. That's his baby. That's his forty four billion dollar right to to post whatever the heck he wants. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. I think that's an important point. Was the the his his changes to the to the blue check mark, where you can you know you oh, can yeah. you can apply for you can pay for a subscription and get your your check mark. Well, you could. Well, you could. Uh, apparently, it's taken down now. That feature, oh. you can no longer do it. I jumped in there because I said to myself, <laughs> "Why not?" Uh, all 300 followers of mine, I said, "I'm doing it. I am gonna be verified." And so, I'm one of those people who paid for it, uh, and I have no regrets. People control me all they like. Um, I wrote about this. I thought it would be a nice little revenue boost in the short term. In the in the short term, and I really want to emphasize again, short term. Long term, this is not good. I mean. Uh, with Eli Lilly and company, for example, there was a troll account that was created and they were, you know, quote unquote, verified with the $8 subscription fee. And it was just like Eli Lilly. And they said, insulin is now free. And the price of Eli Lilly dropped like 50 bucks from like 320 or something. And what I did was invested in it because I knew that that was not real. You know, that was uh, that was a dump that happened from a fake account on Twitter. And I came away with like five bucks out of all 20 that I invested. <laughs> um, but what you have is a bunch of accounts that are uh, delegitimate delegitimizing uh, real content on Twitter. You know, they're making it to where it's just a platform to troll, no longer a platform to com- communicate information. And if you if you make Twitter like that, advertisers are not going to want to jump in because they never know if their company is going to be used for something or if their advertisement is going to be placed next to a fake uh, a fake post or something like that doesn't give them a lot of certainty. And on top of that, you're bleeding users. And so what, what's their return on this? You know, it's a big risk for them to be putting advertisements on your site, and that's where you get all of your revenue. So. I think that blue check was good in the short term for revenue, but long term, probably not going to work out. Caden, we got about one minute left. What do you see on the horizon that looks promising? Are there are there up and coming platforms that you see um, are more viable that uh, that are going to serve uh, you know people better than yeah. Twitter is doing? Well, I I hope that there are some more, but I know that TikTok and Be Real are very popular among younger generations, um, myself not included, which is kind of sorry for me to say. Well, you got a blue uh, check mark. Why would you need to? <laughs> right. Well, I, I'm the kind of person who watches Instagram Reels instead of TikToks, and so maybe I'm not the best authority on this, but there is just mounting evidence that newer platforms are uh, now gaining dominance, and that's fantastic. That's the market at work. It's what we've been saying for the last six or seven years during the tech lash, and I think that we should just watch this happen and know that this is cyclical, this is how things are supposed to be, and it's, it's really a good trend for the market in general. Again, we are talking with Caden Rosenbaum. He's the Technology and Innovation Policy Analyst at uh, Libertas Institute based in Lehigh, Utah, also a Young Voices contributor. Caden, where can people follow you on social media? Yeah, so if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Caden Rosenbaum. That is uh, C-A-D-E-N, Rosenbaum, like like a rose, N-B-A-U-M. And if you want to check out some of my writings on the site, it's libertas.org, L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S.org. 